And I think as you slow down a little bit more and look a little deeper into the scriptures, I think your eyes are going to be opened. And I think this will encourage your heart. Not because I've given you some principles to work with, but because this is God's word to you. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and thanks for joining me in the Fox Den. Today's episode is really going to be a continuation of my last episode. In that episode, I gave you 10 tips on reading the Bible. And today I'm going to give you 10 principles for studying the Bible. Now, I'm sure you can see the distinction between the two, but I have in mind when we read the Bible, we're actually reading the Bible. And when we're studying the Bible, we're taking time to look a little deeper on what particular passages have to say. So it's more of an in-depth look at the Bible instead of just reading the text. So with that, let's begin. Now, if you haven't done so already, go ahead and take time to listen to episode 27 before you listen to this episode, because this episode is actually going to be built on episode 27. Now, when we're reading the Bible and we're studying the Bible, there's obviously going to be overlap. So some of the things I talked about in that episode aren't necessarily going to be covered in this episode, but you're doing the same thing. So you're going to use the same tips when you're reading the Bible and when you're studying the Bible. So I'm not going to cover those items in this episode, but just know that those still apply when studying the Bible. So the first principle in studying the Bible is recognizing the authority of Scripture. Now, when you're reading the Bible, you're not reading any ordinary book. The Bible is God's Word to us. In other words, the Bible isn't just a book about God. In the Bible, God is communicating to us. And there's two main places that we go to support that the Bible is indeed God's Word to us. And the first is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And there it says that God breathed out all Scripture. And what Paul means by that is that God spoke the Scriptures. So what the Bible says is God speaking to us. Peter supports this position in 2 Peter chapter 1. In verse 21, he shows us that God spoke through men that were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you compare the different writers of the Bible, you're going to see differences. I don't mean differences in the sense of theological inconsistencies. I mean, if you read Luke and Mark, you're going to see the same story, but they're going to read a little bit differently. And the reason why is because they're different men. So God spoke through men, but he didn't violate who he created them to be. So we see their own personality in these different works. Yet it's God himself who moved them to write what he wanted, and yet he didn't violate their personality. So as Christians, we believe the Bible is the word of God. God spoke to us in the scriptures. And because God spoke to us through the Bible, it is his word to us. And therefore, it has authority. Now, because this is God's word to us, you don't get to believe some parts and not others. Now, I think we're all guilty of this to some degree, but that has to do with our own sin nature. We tend to elevate ourselves above God, and we demand that he prove himself to us. So sometimes we just don't believe what the scriptures say. Sometimes this is intentional. Sometimes this is accidental. I'm not sure that's the best word to use, but I'm implying that it's not intentional. And by the way, when I say intentional, I mean sinfully intentional. 
but sometimes it's accidental. And I think baptism is a good example to illustrate this point. There are believers who believe in infant baptism, and there's other believers who don't believe in infant baptism. And both sides believe they understand the scriptures properly. And I don't even mean that arrogantly. So if you take somebody from a Baptist background, they're going to say that children should not be baptized, and they're going to support their position with scripture. And those who believe in infant baptism are going to do the same. So we come to two different conclusions based on the same scriptures because we understand it differently. And again, I'm going to argue the reason why this happens is because of our own sin nature. But here's the point. One of us is wrong. Either infant baptism is biblical or it's not. Now again, as a guy who holds to infant baptism, I'm not saying that my Baptist brothers are wrong, and I'm right when I make that statement. What I'm saying is, one of us is wrong. Either I'm wrong for holding to infant baptism, or they're wrong for not holding to it. Thank God God is gracious, and he is not going to keep us out of the kingdom because one of us is wrong. But sometimes we don't believe what the scriptures say, and it's because we just don't understand the scriptures properly. But one of the reasons why we study the scriptures is so that we have the most accurate view possible. So keep in mind that the Bible is God's word to us, and therefore it tells us what we are to believe and how we are to behave. Principle number two, understand the purpose of the Bible. The Bible is not a book for better living. The Bible is not a book of good moral stories. In fact, the Bible is filled with stories of murder, sexual immorality, deception. It's really hard to find good moral stories in the Bible. So it's not a book of good moral stories. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal God and his plan of salvation. That's why he wrote the Bible through these different men. So we could know him. Without it, we would never know him. We might know that there is a God by seeing the sun and the trees grow and things like that. But we would never know him personally unless he revealed himself. And he did that in the scriptures. In fact, throughout the whole Old Testament, he is telling us the good news of Christ. And he did that hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And at this point, let me point you to episode 8, where I talk about how God acts out the gospel throughout the Bible. So God is revealing himself in the scriptures, and he's revealing his plan of salvation. And without it, we would never know him. So God is acting graciously by letting us see who he is in the scriptures. Now, also keep in mind that God has not revealed all of who he is in the scriptures. We merely get a glimpse of him. So he's revealing who he is in his plan of salvation, which means he is revealing our sin and our need for a savior. So with that said, keep the purpose of the Bible in mind as you study the Bible. And now let me point you to episode 20, where I talk about the purpose of the law. Principle number three, recognize the unity of the Bible. Now, there are many stories in the Bible, but it's one main story. The Bible is not a collection of disconnected stories. In fact, the Bible is moving to the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. That's where God promised to defeat Satan. And we see God marching to that fulfillment through the rest of Scripture, all the way to the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible. So let me give you some examples of how this is a collection of stories, yet one story. 
In John chapter 3, Jesus says the bronze serpent in Numbers 21 points to him. The event of the bronze serpent in Numbers 21 takes place while the people are wandering in the wilderness. That is in between the time that they left Egypt and they entered the promised land. And the people grumbled against God, and he sent serpents, and they were bitten by the serpents. So they asked Moses to pray for them, which he did. God told him to make a serpent, put it on a pole, and when the people were bitten by the snakes, they would look at the bronze serpent, and then they would live. And Jesus, in John chapter 3, says that event was pointing to him. And Jesus says this before he's crucified. So what he was saying is that he had to be crucified because that's what the bronze serpent was pointing to. And speaking of the crucifixion, this is prophesied elsewhere in the Old Testament. Take a look at John chapter 19. Verses 36 and 37 have two indications that the Old Testament was pointing forward to the crucifixion. When Jesus was crucified, he was crucified with two men, and they broke the legs of those two men so that they would die. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't need to break his legs. Well, verse 36 here is saying that the reason why they didn't break his legs is because it was prophesied in the book of Exodus. You see, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Yes, they didn't break his legs because Jesus was dead, but God directed the event in such a way that they didn't break his legs in order to fulfill prophecy. So just before the people of Israel left Egypt, they took lambs without blemish, they killed it, and then they put blood on the doorposts. And then they were to cook the lamb and they were to eat it. But notice what Exodus chapter 12 verse 46 says. They shall not break the bones. So John is telling us in John chapter 19 verse 36 that the reason why they weren't to break the bones of the Passover lamb in Exodus is because Jesus' legs would not be broken. His bones would not be broken. So John is telling us that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Paul actually confirms that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. There he specifically calls Jesus our Passover lamb. Jesus who was sacrificed for our sins. You see, the Passover lamb in Exodus pointed to Jesus. And then the second indication there in John chapter 19, we see in verse 37. When Jesus was crucified on the cross and he was dead, they pierced his side with a spear. And this was prophesied about 500 years before Jesus was even born in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. So we see that the, the Bible is made up of a bunch of different stories, and all these stories put together make up this one story. And that is God fulfilling what he spoke to Satan in Genesis 3.15. He's going to defeat Satan, and Christ is the seed that crushes his head. Principle number four, rely on Scripture to interpret Scripture. If the Bible is God's word, it correctly interprets itself. Now, let me just say, this is easier said than done. Again, I've talked about this in my last episode, where the Bible isn't always crystal clear to us. It was written over 2,000 years ago in two different languages, And it's difficult at times to translate into modern languages. We have what we need. God has revealed himself in a way that we can understand him today. We just may not be able to understand all the nuances that we see in the Bible. There are still some things that we just don't necessarily understand, and that's okay. However, the bottom line in all of this is we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. 
Again, like I've already said, if the Bible's God's word, then it correctly interprets itself. For example, how do we know that Jesus is the Passover lamb? Both John and Paul tell us he is. Paul even calls him the Passover lamb. So we've already looked at a couple examples of how the Bible interprets itself. But let me give you another example. Look at what Isaiah says in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He says, The Spirit of God is upon him. He anointed him to bring good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, to preach liberty to captives, and proclaim the opening of the prison. But if we go to Luke chapter 4, in verses 16 and following, we see that Jesus is in the synagogue. He gets up, he grabs the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads that very passage. He hands it back to the attendant, and he sits down. And everybody's looking at him. And he said, today, this has been fulfilled. You see what Isaiah wrote, probably 700 years before Jesus even read this passage, Isaiah was saying that was him. But that pointed forward to Christ. And Jesus is saying, this is me. Jesus is the one who was speaking through Isaiah when he wrote that 700 years before Jesus was in the synagogue. Right? So Isaiah said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And Jesus said the same thing. So this is really a double fulfillment. The Spirit of the Lord was on Isaiah, but that was pointing forward to Christ, who is God's anointed. You see, it's a double fulfillment. But this is a place that we can go where Scripture interprets Scripture. That passage in Isaiah is about Jesus because Jesus himself says so. So in those areas where we're having difficulty, we allow the Scriptures to interpret Scripture because Scripture is the only infallible interpreter of Scripture. Now again, this doesn't mean that we're going to understand everything. We're just not. And you may have some areas where you're struggling and you don't really understand what it means, and Scripture doesn't really speak to that very clearly. Again, I gave an example of baptism, where we have two sides that hold two differing views, and we've both gone to the Scriptures to support our position. But there are other areas, like I've just shown you, where the Scriptures do interpret for us. So again, this principle is to rely on Scripture to interpret Scripture. There's parts you don't understand. Look to the Scriptures to see if it will clarify for you. In fact, I would say go to the Scriptures first. Don't go to commentaries or any other man first. It's okay to look at those things to see if you're on the right track. But Scripture is the only infallible interpreter of Scripture. Principle number five, recognize the context. When I was in seminary, we had a saying, context is king. Context will help you understand a word or a passage. So, for example, take the word train. What does train mean? I don't know. What's the context? Is it a choo-choo train? Or am I going to train somebody? The English word is spelt the same in either way, but you don't know what that word means until I put it in a context. This is where scripture memory can be a little dangerous. We take these isolated passages and we memorize them, which I still think is a good thing, so please don't misunderstand me. But we're memorizing them out of their context. Now, you know the danger of this, of taking things out of context. We've all heard that saying or have said it ourselves. Well, you've taken that out of context, right? We can take anything and make it say what we want. So, for example, take Romans 12, verse 19, and there it says that vengeance is mine. So, does that mean I can take vengeance on those who hurt me? No. 
because if I look at the context, I see that it's God who says that vengeance is his. So I have to interpret that within the context so I don't get to take revenge on those who hurt me. It's God who will take vengeance and repay those who hate him, who rebel against him. In fact, at the beginning of verse 19, Paul tells us to never avenge ourselves, but we leave it to the wrath of God. So we have to be careful to interpret Scripture within its context. Principle number six, pay attention to all of the words. Now, this is a good time to say brush up on your grammar, and I'm going to point you to the Purdue Online Writing Lab or owl.purdue.edu or owl.purdue.edu. And there you'll find everything you need to brush up on the English grammar. And I learned in seminary how important grammar really is. You see, every word has a purpose. So, for example, if we go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, what's the first conjunction you see? Therefore, that word is there to point you back to what Paul has already said in chapters 1 through 11. Because of the grace that God has extended to us, Paul is appealing to his readers to present their bodies as living sacrifices. That conjunction, therefore, is important because he's telling you, based on what he just said, he's encouraging you to do this. Or take a look at Ephesians chapter 1. Paul uses a very important preposition, in, and he uses it with Christ, in Christ. Now think of what that preposition means. As I'm recording this podcast, I'm in my house. I'm not outside. So that preposition means in. So when you're in Christ, you are in him. Now I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually, but you're in him. You're not outside of him. Non-believers are outside of him. Believers are in him. Now if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3 and following, Look at all of the things that Paul says about being in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Before the foundations of the world, he chose us in Christ. We have redemption in Christ. We have obtained an inheritance in Christ. So you can see how important that little word is. That's just a preposition, but it's incredibly significant in this context. Or take a look at Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. There we see the use of a definite article, and that's the word, the. And there Jeremiah calls God the Lord, the true God, the living God, the everlasting King. Do you know what that little three-letter word is doing? It's telling you there is no other. Not a Lord, but the Lord. He's not a true God, but the true God. That means there is no other true God. The living God, not a living God. And because he's the living God, there is no other living God. The everlasting king, which means there is no other everlasting king. So that little definite article, the word the, plays a very important role. Keep in mind, every word has a purpose. God is not accidental in this. Now there is a caution in this, and I'm going to speak in particular to the word the, This kind of applies to everything, but I'm going to use this as an example. In John chapter 1, verse 1, John tells us that the Word was in the beginning. He was with God and he was God. Now, there are some who take that passage to say that Jesus is a God, not the God. 
because in the original language, the word God does not have a definite article in front of it. So in Greek, you normally translate a word without a definite article with a or a. So for example, if there's a definite article before God, it would be the God. If there's not a definite article, it would be a God. So what they would argue is because there's no definite article, you translate it a God, not the God. So they would say that Jesus is a God, but not the God. Now there's other places that we can go to see that that is not an appropriate translation, but I'm going to take you to another place in John that indicates that that is not a proper translation. So if you go to John chapter 20, you see the story of doubting Thomas. Now if you remember that story, Thomas refused to believe that Christ rose from the dead until he could actually touch the wounds. So we see in verse 26 and following that Jesus appeared to him, and he gives him the opportunity to touch his wounds. And how does Thomas answer? My Lord and my God. I want to point out a couple things here. First of all, if Thomas saw Jesus as a God, he would be a polytheist. Polytheist believes that there are many gods, but he's not a polytheist. He's a monotheist. He believes there is one God, and he's calling Jesus that God. In fact, if we go to the original language, John chapter 20, verse 28, we see that John says, the Lord of mine and the God of mine. In the original language, he uses a definite article. So not only is Thomas saying there is no other God that is mine, he's saying there's no other God. Thomas is not polytheistic. He doesn't believe in more than one God. So here he is saying that Jesus is the God of his. There is no other God of Thomas. Thomas is saying that he has no other God, and it's because there is no other God, and Jesus is that God. Now, before I finish this principle, I do want to say pay attention to verbs. Verbs are very important. Well, I guess I just said that all words are important. But verbs are important. And let me point you to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Now, in this sentence, there is one subject and two verbs. The subject is God, and the two verbs are delivered and transferred. So the first thing I want to I point out is the significance of the words. He delivered or rescued us from Satan's domain, and he transferred us to Christ's kingdom. Now, keep in mind what this means. God is the one who delivered us. God is the one who rescued us. And God is the one who transferred us. He moved us from one kingdom to another. So those two verbs paint a beautiful picture of what God did. Now, I've actually used my daughter to illustrate this point when I've taught this passage. So I have her standing in one spot, and I put a little sign there that said, Domain of Darkness. And I went over, and I picked her up, and I moved her over to the kingdom of his beloved son so that people could see what happened. God transferred. He moved us from one kingdom to another. Principle number seven, pay attention to the type of literature being used. Now, I talked about this in my last episode, so I'm not going to go into much detail. But recognize when you're reading narrative and when you're reading Hebrew poetry, recognize the figurative language. So your narrative is typically your storytelling. And by storytelling, I don't mean fictitious stories, right? I can tell a real story, 
and use narrative language. For example, earlier today, I went into the kitchen, I ate lunch. Okay, that's narrative, but it's not fiction. I actually ate lunch. So just because I'm using the word storytelling doesn't mean that it's fiction. The historical books of the Old Testament primarily use narrative language. Same thing with the Gospels and the book of Acts. They typically use narrative. They're telling a story. Other books like the wisdom literature, Job through Song of Solomon, they use Hebrew poetry, and Hebrew poetry uses a lot of figurative language. The book of Revelation is filled with figurative language, but the type of literature is apocalyptic. It's pointing forward. So just identify the type of language that you're, you're reading or the type of literature that you're reading. Is it narrative, Hebrew poetry? Is it apocalyptic, prophets? So just be mindful of the type of literature reading. Be mindful of the type of language that's being used and interpret it accordingly. Principle number eight, commands are based on the facts. Facts are not based on the commands. There's a term that you may hear that the imperative is based on the indicative. It's the exact same thing of saying commands are based on facts. So if we look at Greek verbs, one of the moods that the verbs have is an indicative. Another mood is imperative. Indicatives are facts. I took my daughter to volleyball. That's an indicative. An imperative is a command. Forgive one another. So just understand that the imperatives of Scripture are based on the indicative. The commands in Scripture are based on the facts of Scripture. So for example, if we go back to the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 12 verse 2, Paul tells us not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed. Those are imperatives. Those are commands. But notice, that's Romans chapter 12. The commands come after the indicative, which is Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 11. Again, we saw that earlier with Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, because of what Paul already said, he urges us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. The way we typically think is that the indicative is based on the imperative. So, in a sense, God will forgive you if you obey his commands. But that's not the case. God has extended his grace to us. He has delivered us from Satan's domain and transferred us to Christ's kingdom. Because that's true, we are to not be conformed to the world but be transformed. Again, our tendency is to find what God is telling us to do. When we look in the Bible, what am I supposed to do? What are the commands? That seems to be what we look for. But when we do that, the danger is we make God's grace dependent on our obedience. So what that would look like is if we forgive, then God will forgive us. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is God forgave us all our sins. Because God forgave all our sins, we are to forgive one another. The commands of God are based on what God has done. The commands of God are based on the facts. So make sure you get this in the right order. Commands are based on the facts. Principle number nine. Take time to write down any questions that you have as you're reading, and then take time to answer those questions. I said this in my last episode. But think for yourself. Think through what do these different words tell you. And you may get it wrong. 
But then take time to to find the answers to these questions. But think for yourself. Don't fall back on commentaries. Use those to see if you're on the right track. But also understand with the commentaries, you have one man's thoughts, one man's commentary on particular passages. Now, at this point, I'm going to, again, encourage you not to go out and buy a bunch of resources to help you in this. There's places you can go online. There's many Bible helps online for free. And then principle number 10, be willing to allow the Bible to change your theology. Because of our sinfulness, we tend to force the Bible to fit our theology. We're all guilty of it. And again, it's rooted in our own sinfulness. We don't want to be wrong, and so we can make the Bible say what we want it to say. But remember, the Bible is God's word to us. So God gets to tell us what is true about him. God gets to tell us what is true about us. So I remember in seminary, things that I believed that changed after I studied in seminary. And these weren't necessarily easy changes. So I'm not using myself as an example to say, be like me. I understand how difficult it can be when you read something and it goes counter to what you believe. And there's two options here. Either your theology is wrong or you're not understanding the passage correctly. But again, there'd be a caution here. Don't assume that you're not understanding the scriptures. It might be that your theology is wrong. And because the Bible is God's word to us, you allow it to change your theology. Well, I hope these 10 principles for studying the Bible are helpful for you. And I think as you slow down a little bit more and look a little deeper into the scriptures, I think your eyes are going to be opened And I think this will encourage your heart, not because I've given you some principles to work with, but because this is God's word to you. And as you open up the Bible and begin to study it, ask God not only to help you understand the scriptures, but ask him to nourish your soul and encourage your heart. 